Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Tiffany Dawson. She is a career coach for women in STEM. After working in the construction industry for a number of years, she changed careers and is now devoted to helping women build the careers that they want. And she's also the host of How to Be a Steminist, and that's a podcast. I'm interested to learn more about her transition from engineering to career coach, her podcast, and the definition of STEMinist. But welcome to Teach the Geek interviews, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me on. First question. So I did a bit of research on you, and I saw that you studied mechanical engineering in school. What was the motivation to do that? <laughs> yes, I laugh because the motivation for me learning engineering was that I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I kind of ruled out other things. I knew at school, you know, I loved physics, I loved maths, and they were subjects that I needed. Uh, so I grew up in Australia. So they were subjects that I needed in order to gain an engineering degree. Um, and, you know, I kind of had a look at other subjects. I wasn't really into reading, so law was out. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I didn't like blood and guts, so you know, medicine was out and it seemed like very hard work anyway. Um, yeah, so it was kind of like, I guess, you know, when you're 16 to 18 years old, it's so hard to know what you want to do. It's quite sunny here all of a sudden. Um, it's so hard to know what to do. So I think it was just a process of elimination and that was my pathway into engineering. In terms of choosing mechanical engineering, so the way that my university course worked was I, you know, everyone goes into engineering general in the first year of the four-year degree and then after the first year you choose your specialist um, area so I really liked working with moving parts uh, more so than you know civil engineering and structural engineering which were all about you know static loads so yeah that's that's how I kind of came to mechanical engineering you know, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not much into reading either. You know, when I, when I, when I watch podcasts and sometimes the host will ask to guess what your favorite book is, I'm always thinking to myself, man, if I'm ever on a podcast, I hope I don't get that question because I'm going to look like a complete idiot because I don't have a, I won't have a good answer. I'm like, what's the last time you read a book, Neil? I'm like, oh, no, man. Oh, no. Well, you know, funnily enough, I actually really enjoy reading now, but I think what was happening was I was reading the wrong books or maybe it was because I was forced to read at school and I don't much like being told what to do. Yeah, you know what? I'm with you on that too. But you know what? At least you had a pretty good your your reasoning for mechanical engineering, at least in engineering in general, was a process of elimination. I studied engineering because my father told me to. Ah, there you go. It's a it's I, I you know for the longest while I used to lie about the reason when people would ask me I'd make up a reason because I thought that that reason was so lame. But after you know as I've gotten older I'm just like why am I lying for it? It's just it's the truth is the truth will set you free. That's that's why I studied yeah. engineering. <laughs> 
and uh, you know my my father is an electrical engineer and he also told me to study engineering but I also had my own reasons too as well <laughs> yeah well you're better than me in that respect <laughs> so you know I, I mentioned in the in the intro that you worked in the construction industry for a while when you graduated from school was that always the plan or did you just happen to go into construction do you know what I'm I'm still kind of a little bit ashamed to say this now but after my four years of being you know studying engineering at university I actually didn't know what an engineer did <laughs> so you know I, I i went to this university that's um one of the top universities in australia very academic very much into their research focus but you know in my opinion they probably didn't really prepare their students very well for entering the workforce they were preparing students to go into research and take on phds and because i didn't know that many engineers in my own life, I actually didn't really know what jobs were available to me. So it wasn't until I started applying for graduate roles that I started to realize what kinds of jobs were available. And in all honesty, the same thing happened. I, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I just applied for heaps of roles and um, I was offered two different roles. One was in the manufacturing industry, um, working for Mars, you know, people who make Mars bars and they also make dog food and Italian sauces and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and I was also offered a job in uh, designing building services for new buildings so in the construction industry. And just based on those two offers, I, I took the construction industry job because that meant that I could still live in the city, whereas the manufacturing job I'd be out in the middle of nowhere or whoop whoop, as we call it in Australia. <laughs> wow. So that was that was the only thing that, that, that made you decide on one over the other, just place to live. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now looking back at it, it sounds crazy, but that that was literally how I got to where I was. <laughs> No, doesn't sound doesn't sound that crazy at all. You know, the I guess what's the word? The standard of life, I guess that that matters in terms of just you know wanting to live where you want to live, and you know that that plays into your your happiness. And if you're happy where you're living at, then I'm guessing where your job, you, you perhaps well it would be helpful to to having your what's the, what am I trying to say? <laughs> if you're happy if you're happy where you're living at, then working at at, at working someplace maybe won't be as as, as as unbearable I guess I mean maybe because maybe if you're living somewhere you don't want to live and then you really don't like your job then it seems even worse <laughs> I guess totally yeah. totally and I think that looking back at that one moment where I had to decide between these two jobs it's it's really a sliding doors type moment you know my life could have been completely different um and you know i'm sure i'm sure we can get onto that later but my life honestly would be so different if i had chosen the other job i think it's kind of crazy that you said after four years of engineering you didn't know what an engineer did i felt bad going into engineering just because my father said so now i feel so bad at least i knew what <laughs> engineers were after the four years <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. So, so yeah. So you're you're living somewhere you want to live. You're you're working in the construction industry, but you know, yeah. eventually. Sorry, it's a bit. It's never sunny in the UK, and suddenly it's very sunny at the moment. 
You know, a few <laughs> years ago, I actually went to the UK just to visit, and I I'd always heard that it was it wasn't sunny there. But the first day it was there, the sun was out. So I was thinking, what the hell are these people talking about? But the next day, <laughs> the sun was nowhere to be found. And I wouldn't see the sun until I left. It, it, was, it was rainy and, dr and just dreary the rest, of the, the rest of the time I was there. But I, I enjoyed it, though. It was, it, was, it was cool just to, you know, go to London and just, you know, see, see Europe. First time there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Sorry, so, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, no problem. So... You worked in the construction industry for a number of years, but then you, you left it to, you know, to do something else, obviously. What did you learn from, the, from working in that construction industry that has informed the work that you do now? So much, so much. So, you know, my, my current work is, as you said before, coaching women in STEM with regards to their career. So really taking back control of their careers and helping them to create a fulfilling career without compromising their family and social lives. Now, I worked for lots of different offices for a few very different uh, engineering companies. And I think all of those experiences really brought me to where I am today. I think if maybe the, the one main thing that I really learned was that imposter syndrome as a minority working in any workforce is so much more pronounced and as a woman in the construction industry often I was the only woman in the room and I was often second guessing myself feeling like I had to cover up for any lack of ability or lack of knowledge that I had and I, I did you know honestly walk around for eight years trying to cover up the fact that I was no good at my job. It wasn't until I started speaking to other people that, um, you know, I realized I wasn't the only one. And now I, that's something that I teach to other women in STEM. First of all, that they're not the only ones who feel this way. It's very, very common. And there is actually a way to overcome it. So that's one of the things uh, out of many that I coach women on. So when you said that you spoke to others and you found out that you weren't the only one that was experiencing imposter syndrome, are you just talking about other women or are you talking about anyone in general? To be honest, I guess I probably spoke to more women because I felt more comfortable sharing, you know, my imposter syndrome woes with other women who were like me. So I found that there were lots of other women who shared the same feelings. I did manage to speak to a couple of men on this and I know that they, you know, also often from time to time will feel the same way. So I think it really is a universal thing and it, it's just how our brain works. Fear is there to protect us. And, you know, when, when we're feeling fear, often that can, in our day and age, turn into imposter syndrome in the workplace. You know, I read a, a post of yours and you said that no amount of success can cure you of imposter syndrome. And when I, after I read that, I thought, well, that's a problem. <laughs> because eventually, <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, I, for my first thought was if you wanted to work for somebody, hopefully you're working for someone that doesn't have that imposter syndrome because you want to work for someone who is confident in knowing that they can do the job that they are that they were hired to do you want to hire i mean you want to work for a leader who's confident in their abilities as a leader so getting rid of that or eliminating that imposter syndrome is is prevalent is, is really important is there any kind of cure 
for imposter syndrome? And so what is it? Totally. You know, there's quite a few tools that I teach my clients and I run group corporate workshops online and in person as well. And, you know, I've even got a couple of podcast episodes about some uh, cures and little tools and tips and tricks that you can use. So I think really firstly, understanding why we have fear and what imposter syndrome is, is really important. Once you understand what it is, it feels a little bit easier to overcome. It feels a little less like you're the one who's got some sort of defect because you feel imposter syndrome. It's something that happens to a lot of people and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Just try and understand it. So the second thing is to understand how imposter syndrome shows up for you. So for me, when I was working in my engineering company, um, I got to the point where from the outside, I probably looked successful to my peers. I was um, leading a group of 30 engineers. Some of them were, you know, more than two, like double my age. (laughs) Some of them had been in the industry for ages or there were graduates who Uh, finished at the top of their class. So I was managing these really high performing people and it got to the point where although I looked successful and I had all these accolades, it, it wasn't something that would cure my imposter syndrome at all. I just felt like I was more and more out of my depth. So, you know, the cause of my imposter syndrome was because I guess I was just surrounded by lots of really intelligent people and I didn't feel like I could match up to that. So that was my cause. So second thing really is to figure out what's the cause of your imposter syndrome. And third thing is to find a tool to overcome it that suits you. Um, One of the ones that I talk about in my podcast is keeping what I call an evidence journal. So this is something that you keep either in a book or a document on your computer or something on your phone where every time you do something that you're proud of or you get good feedback from a client or from a colleague, you make a little note of it. So what happened, the date and, you know, why you're proud of it. Over time, you're going to start creating this massive list of all these things that you've done, all these achievements that you've made. And so when you get to the point where you're questioning your ability on something, you can go back to this list and say, hey, I've got this bank of evidence that I'm not bad at this. This can't be due to luck that I've achieved all of these things. I'm actually good for something. I'm actually good at all this stuff. So that's probably, you know, one of the tools I'd like to share. I've got a whole bunch more as well, which I'm sure we don't have time to go into today. But um, yeah, happy to share them with any of your listeners if they're interested. If you ever were in a situation where you were around high achieving people, would your imposter syndrome show up again, you think? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, even as a coach who teaches lots of other people how to overcome imposter syndrome, it is natural for imposter syndrome to show up again. The key difference now is that I have the tools to overcome it and well, firstly identify it when it comes up and overcome it when it does show up. 
you know, I, I don't know if you've seen a lot of these quotes from celebrities, but you know, there's heaps of people out there who say that they have imposter syndrome and they are people who everyone looks up to. So for example, I found a quote from Jennifer Lopez. So JLo, she's one of the best singers and she looks so confident all the time. And there's a quote from her saying that she's actually really insecure about her voice. So imposter syndrome happens to everyone, even successful people, but successful people are the ones who don't let imposter syndrome stop them. J-Lo should be insecure about her voice. She's not the best singer. (laughs) (laughs) Are you better? (laughs) I'm not better, but I know my limitations. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to imposter syndrome, is this just something that you feel from within? So it's completely internal and there's no I guess, external stimulus for it. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's something that, that no matter what would have happened at your company, you were going to feel that, that uh, the imposter syndrome no matter what. There's nothing that the, the company could have done about it. Yeah, I think maybe it's a little bit of both. Really, you know, to overcome imposter syndrome is internal work it can't really be external because no matter how many leadership positions i got or how much great feedback i received i still felt inadequate so there's no you know amount of telling me how good i am at something i would still believe that i wasn't good enough so to overcome it it's really internal work in terms of external influences to actually um, having imposter syndrome in the first place, there are probably quite a lot of influences out there. Um, you know, I, I shared recently that one of my managers, maybe three years into my career, sat me down and told me I wasn't progressing fast enough and he chucked me off into another team. Now, I can look back at that situation now with some clarity and some big picture thinking. And I know that I wasn't progressing fast enough, not just because of my ability, but I was the youngest person in that um, workplace for two to three years. So there was no one actually coming up to push me into the next level. So I can see now that, you know, that wasn't completely true what he said, but at the time that really knocked my confidence. So I'm sure that had an effect. And being a minority um, in any sort of group, you have to work a little bit harder to gain the respect of other people. So I am absolutely sure that those had an effect on me having imposter syndrome in the first place as well. Were you going to from an engineer to a career coach? Was that something that you had always planned to do? No, not at all. So I, I grew up in a family where, you know, my mum and dad taught, taught me to get good grades, work really hard and find an employer who will treat you well and pay you well and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I did follow that path for a long time. It never even occurred to me that starting up my own business is possible or available to me. That just wasn't ever part of my plan or even in my realm of possibilities. So no, it definitely wasn't planned. But I think the thing that really highlighted 
to me that I should be a career coach was when I moved to the UK last year, I've had a couple of stints in the UK, so it might, my story might be a little bit confusing, but you know, I started off in Australia, moved to London, moved back to Australia, and then last year moved back to the UK again. So this time when I moved back to the UK, you know, I went into a role where I no longer had any leadership um, responsibilities. I was just delivering projects. I was just purely, you know, a, a project engineer and I didn't have any line management duties or anything. And at that point I realized something was missing in my career. I realized that the thing that was missing between my last job and this one was that I wasn't able to coach anyone. I didn't have anyone to bring up an, under my wing and to coach them through their career challenges and towards their own career goals. So that's when it really clicked for me that coaching uh, and especially coaching women in STEM was my calling in life. That was something that I really, really missed. I, I realized I was good at it and I was able to impact a lot of people's lives doing that. So are you saying that if you were, if the job that you had had going back to, to, to England last year was a job that did have those management type responsibilities, you becoming a career coach for women in STEM may not have happened? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think it got to the point last year where I I wasn't completely happy in my job and I, I just didn't understand why. So it really did make me reflect on what it was that was missing. So, you know, it was probably a blessing in disguise that I went into this job not having those leadership responsibilities and that prompting me to realize coaching was something I was going to uh, fulfill. You know, with the, the initial job, the, the problem was having people that were high achieving reporting to you would bring up the imposter syndrome. With this other job, the problem was not having <laughs> the ability to coach people. It says, geez, what, 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 what makes Tiffany Dawson happy? <laughs> that's what makes her happy is, is being her own being her own boss and running her own company so yeah. as, a, as, as a career coach for, for women in STEM what type of, of services do you provide your clients so I work in two different ways so one would be one-on-one -on -one coaching with individual women in STEM so this is where we I, I always work together with with women in STEM um, you know, for, for a group of coaching sessions first, I never do one off coaching sessions with a new client just because there's just not enough time to fit everything in. But I, I really help women to overcome any challenges that they're having with their careers. One of the most uh, prominent challenges I see women have, and they always come to me with this, is they don't know what direction to take their career in. So they might be at a crossroads or they might be just starting their careers. They might be, you know, moving into a more senior role, but they're trying to figure out what the next step is. And they just have so many options in front of them and they can't figure it out. And they really want to make sure that they write them, uh, make the right decision. So I help coach them through that to identify their goals and what strategy to put in place to actually get there. So that's one of the things I work with women on. The other, of course, is imposter syndrome. That's a real barrier to, to getting to those goals in the first place. And a whole bunch of other stuff, mainly to do with um, setting boundaries, 
for work-life balance. I don't really like the term work-life balance because work is part of your life, but I haven't found a better term for it yet. So if anyone out there has a better term for it, I'd be, um, I'm all ears. Um, but yeah, setting those boundaries, creating work-life balance, being more effective by doing less. So those are the kinds of things I work with my individual clients on. I also perform group coaching workshops with either female organizations. So there are a bunch of you know, women in STEM organizations out there, or they might be with STEM organizations themselves. So engineering companies, for example, or tech companies, they might have a group of women there who are interested in learning how to overcome imposter syndrome, creating work-life balance and learning how to actually craft their own fulfilling career. Okay. I've heard the term work-life integration used before. What do you think of that term? Oh, I like that. I quite yeah. like that. Yeah. Thank yes. you. <laughs> You're welcome. And if you didn't like it, keep it to yourself. <laughs> so now I want to talk a little bit about your podcast, How to Be a Steminist. I listened to a couple of episodes. Obviously, I'm not the target audience, but I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool podcast. What exactly is a steminist? Ah, good question. So obviously it's, you know, a play on words between STEM and feminist. So what a STEMinist is, is someone who advocates for equality in the STEM fields. I guess that's the quick and easy answer. <laughs> okay. Someone who advocates for equality in the STEM fields. What do you think would need to happen for there to be equality in the STEM fields? Good question. All I... my questions have been good up to this point. <laughs> this the is the only good question you've asked. <laughs> so what, what, what the hell is the problem? <laughs> All my questions have been good, damn it. <laughs> they have been very good. They have damn been right, good. they've been good. <laughs> um, sorry, what was your question again? What would need to happen for yeah. equality to happen in STEM? Yeah. Probably a few things, but the most important thing is for STEM business leaders to take responsibility for equality in their workplaces. By that, I mean, I see a lot of STEM companies out there who throw gender equality and, you know, race equality and diversity work either onto the HR team's shoulders or they might hire in a diversity and inclusion specialist. While all of those professions are needed, the people who need to take responsibility for the results should be the business leaders, so people who sit on the board. And that often doesn't happen because the board members are often mostly males or, you know, from a very non-diverse group. So, you know, First of all, HR managers have so much other stuff to do. Equality shouldn't really be their responsibility or be their um, target that they've got to hit. And diversity and inclusion specialists, they've got a really tough job and they do some great work. But again, sometimes companies fall into the trap of thinking, okay, we've hired this person in now, we've dealt with diversity when in fact it's actually everyone's responsibilities. But in order to make it known to everyone that this is important, it really needs the C-suite leaders to make it their priority and to be vocal about it because 
culture, company culture always trickles down from leadership. And if the leadership team don't care, guess what? The rest of the people aren't going to care either. I don't know if they have these in the UK, but here in the US, we have what are called employee resource groups, ERG for short. And they're essentially affinity groups for the various, I guess, different groups that exist in, in society. So they have one for Blacks, so they got one for Latin, Latinx, LGBTQ, women, you know, all of them have their, their various ERGs. And I'm guessing the reason they, they all exist is because they all have their different opinions and, or their different wants from the company. And so if that's the case, then they taking their, those requests to, the, to those C-suite people to, to implement a, a culture that is inclusive of everyone must be a very difficult task because I'm guessing they all have different, different requirements. So what is the, what I'm always kind of sympathetic actually to the C-suite people as to what they're supposed to do when you got all these different groups telling them this is what you need to do and the other group says this is what you need to do. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I would be really interested in finding out whether there are that many differences between the requests of all these groups. I think as, as minorities, we all face very similar challenges in a workplace. So, you know, I, I don't know much about ERGs. I, I heard the term recently, so I think there might be some British companies that have them. Um, but, yeah, I, I would be very surprised to think everyone's making very different requests. If anything, all we're doing is fighting for equality and for everyone to be treated fairly. Interesting. Well, I mean, the way, the way I, I think about it then is if they're all asking for the same, the same, the same things, then there wouldn't be a need for there to be different groups. It could just be one group asking for the same thing. So I'm, I'm assuming that they're asking for different things, but I certainly could be wrong. I've never actually worked at a company with ERGs, but these are the type of things I think about. What, when it comes to, to public speaking, do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Yes, I do. I Believe it or not, I'm not a natural speaker. I, it was definitely something I had to learn and I'm always still learning so very interested on your your you know tips and tricks as well but because I don't feel like I am a natural speaker I do follow a very structured process of putting together my talk um, I did learn it from someone else so I can't take all uh, all responsibility not responsibility credit for everything I'm about to say but it definitely works so I'm happy to share it with you so <laughs> this might sound a bit strange but I think about it as the forest and the trees <laughs> so the forest is basically the main kind of topic of discussion that you want to talk about and a forest is obviously made up of several trees so I usually pick three points that I'm going to make that supports the topic that I'm talking about. So when I first start writing about something, I will usually think about the topic I want to talk about. So, you know, recently I've been thinking and talking a lot about time management. So I'll think about, you know, time management, what, what can people do to help um, control their own schedules? What are people doing wrong? I'll ask myself all these questions and I'll come up with three main points that I want to make. For longer talks, you can have a few more points, but I find you know three to five points is is enough for the the talks that I do. Then I think about 
what's in it for them. So what's in it for the audience? And that's something that I highlight at the very start of my talk. So you'll often hear me say, by the end of this one hour talk, you will have the tools to do this or you'll have the knowledge about this and that. So this kind of keeps the audience engaged and, you know, really willing to listen to the rest of your point, uh, rest of your points. I also do something that feels unnatural, but sounds really organized. So I'll say, so by the end of this talk, you'll have this and this. Today, I'll be talking about three points. Firstly, topic one. Secondly, topic two. Thirdly, topic three. I always say firstly, secondly, thirdly. Then when I start my talk, I'll, be, I'll say, okay, so my first point for today is this, and I'll repeat myself. When I get to the second point, I'll say the second point is this, the third point is this. It feels really unnatural and it feels a bit forced, but it really helps people to understand where in the talk you are. And it helps for people who are writing notes because I'm definitely a note writer. And when I can't figure out where the speaker's going, I'm like, okay, what, which section do I write my notes in? So that I find is helpful for me. And then at the end, obviously summarizing what you've talked about. How do you feel about that? You're, you're the expert in this field. <laughs> yeah, I have a, so I have a friend and he makes fun of me for having a structure when it comes to doing presentations. I guess he's more of a fly by the seat of your pants type of person. And if, if he was to make fun of me, he would certainly make fun of you as well. My God, first, first, second, third year. He's like, every time he makes fun of me, he says, you're such an engineer. I was like, he says it like it's some sort yeah. of insult. I'm like, yeah, you're not, you're not hurting my feelings. <laughs> I think that's smart what you do. And it, 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 just like you said, it, it, it helps people to follow where you're at in, in the presentation. I, I don't see any downside to it, but what do I know? I'm just an engineer. <laughs> exactly. And I, I actually find that numbering things in conversations is really helpful as well, especially you know, for people who work in STEM, we're often talking about very technical things and trying to maybe explain things to clients who don't have our technical background. So being able to number your thoughts in emails, in conversations, you know, you, you might ask me a question and I'll be like, oh, actually, there are two sides to this. Firstly, this. Secondly, this. In emails, you can do the same thing. If someone's asked you a complex question, you say, I've got three points to make one, two, and three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's a smart move. Keep doing it. So when it comes to your presentations, do you ever get nervous before you, you, you do them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? All the time. I, yeah, all the time. Um, no matter how many times I do it, I'm still nervous. I, you know, I, it's funny nervousness. It can feel like excitement as well so i do you know your your bodily signals for nervousness and excitement are very similar you sweat you're kind of a bit jittery your heart rate goes up so you know one of my mindset flips that i try to use is that i'm actually really excited to give this talk so that gives a bit of a positive spin to things i have tried power posing i don't know if you've seen amy <laughs> Hayes, um, yeah you put the arm <laughs> in your hips like this in the in the toilets beforehand. Good lord! Do, yeah, I've heard of that. Of these. <laughs> okay. I'm not. 
sure if it actually works, but I feel like if I need to do something, that's what I'll do. <laughs> um, you know what's actually really, really helpful? Probably the most practical piece of advice I can give is get to the talk early and start networking with a couple of people there because you know I often give talks to people who uh, to groups who I've never met before so it's very nerve-wracking speaking to a group of people I've never met so if I can get there early and speak to a couple of people get to know them it really helps to calm down my nerves firstly because I'm distracted by the fact that I've got to give a talk in 15 minutes time but secondly I get to know a couple of people and I feel like I've got a couple of friends and supporters in the crowd already. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good advice. I, one of the things that I like to do to quell my nerves or quell my excitement, as, as you would say, is to do physical work, physical activity. I'm not, I'm not saying anything, you know, too, too crazy, but just before you get up on, before you do your presentation, walk around, maybe do some, some knee bends. It really helps to dissipate that nervous or anxious energy. So that's, that's something that I, that I live by. And something I oh, always great. That's something I always recommend to people as well. Well, you know, Tiffany, this has been really interesting learning about you and your your transition to to career coach and learning more about your podcast. Thank you for for being a guest today. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute joy. So people can get in touch with me several ways. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you search for Tiffany Dawson, I should hopefully come up um, there. I'm also active on Instagram. So my handle is at Tiffany Dawson underscore. And I've also got a website, www.tiffanydawson.co. And over there, you can find details to how to join my Facebook community for women in STEM and my podcast links as well. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is Teach the Geek to Speak. It's a public speaking course. You can check it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Tiffany. Thanks very much.